We are glad you are listening to this audio recording produced by Cross Point Presbyterian Church of Park City, Utah. For more information regarding the ministries of Cross Point Presbyterian Church, please visit us online at www.crosspointpca.org. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn to John chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, let me invite you to use one of the pew Bibles that's in the seat where you're sitting or very close by. You can find John 14 on page 771 or page 901, depending on which version of the pew Bible you're using this morning. Now, as you're turning to John chapter 14, let me remind you we are in the midst of a sermon series in which we're looking at the I am statements of Jesus. Now, this particular I am statement of Jesus takes place in a larger grouping called the farewell discourse. Now, Jesus gives this farewell discourse on the eve of what would be the greatest crisis his disciples have ever experienced, his crucifixion. They're in an upstairs room where they're celebrating the Passover meal. This is a Jewish holiday in which there would be a feast and a celebration in which the retelling of God's deliverance of his people, the nation of Israel, out of Egypt would be rehearsed. So the context of this celebration, Jesus looks to his disciples and he explains to them that he's about to leave. He's telling them that he's going to go away and that where he is going, he says in John chapter 13, verse 33, they will not be able to follow. Now, his disciples, for them, this was unsettling news. The disciples clearly don't understand what it is that Jesus is saying and why it's about to happen. But what they do know is that Jesus, the one whom they love, has just told them he will no longer be with them. And so he's preparing them. For the dark days that lie ahead. But he does it in a very special way. He doesn't look at them and say, hey guys, things are going to get rough. Things are about to get tough, so you're going to have to man up. You know, when I go away, you're just going to have to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. And you're just going to have to deal with whatever comes down the pipe. Now Jesus speaks some very powerful and yet very tender words to his disciples. You feel how personal this is when he says to them, your heart must not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And then he goes on, he says, in my father's house, there are many dwelling places. If not, I would not have told you. He says, if I go, then I'm going to come back for you one day. Now, Thomas, one of the disciples, is struggling with two things. And he asks these questions. He wants to know where you're going and how do we get there. And so Jesus answers both questions. He says, I'm going to the Father, and you already know the way to the Father. I'm the way to the Father. So Jesus is telling them where he's going. He says, I'm going to be with the Father. I'm going to heaven because that's where the Father is. We're going to be separated for a time. But while we're apart, I'm going to be preparing a place for you. And when the time's ready, I'm going to come back. And I'm going to take you there with me. Now, we're going to see in this particular passage three affirmations that Jesus makes. So if you would, please stand as we read God's word. John chapter 14 and verse 6. We read these words. Now, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Let's pray. Father, we ask that we would hear your voice within my voice this morning. That you would speak to us and give us faith to believe the gospel. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Short passage. About half a paragraph. But what is it that Jesus is really saying? He's answering the disciples' questions, specifically Thomas's, about we want to know where you're going and we want to know how to get there because we want to join you. And Jesus responds by saying this. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What he's saying, and we've seen this in his other I am declarations, he's saying, I am God. But he goes on. And he's saying, I am the way to God. I am the truth of God that has been revealed. I am the life that God gives it's a claim to be divine. Now, if you think about religious leaders throughout history, lots of them have claimed to know the way to God. That they can direct you to the path to God. But none of them, apart from Jesus, have really claimed to be the one and only God. Not Muhammad, not Buddha, not the Dalai Lama, not Abraham, the father of the faith, not Moses, the great prophet. These are great men. The prophets, some of them, recognized by major world religions like Islam and Judaism and Christianity. But neither Abraham nor Moses or others ever claimed what Jesus is claiming here. That he is the way to God. That he is the truth of God revealed. That he is the life of God on behalf of his people. So we're going to look at this, not in the order that Jesus says, but we're going to kind of mix it up. We're going to look at Jesus' claim to be the truth of God. April 16th, 2007, 32 people were killed, many others wounded, before a gunman on the campus of Virginia Tech took his own life. I don't know if you remember it, but I remember the story being broadcast on every single news agency. Again, we were shocked and we were struck with grief about a senseless massacre on a campus. But something that took place afterwards seemed to be a little bit more startling. The campus officials planned a memorial service for the students. This memorial service was televised live across our country. And this was designated an interfaith service. If you don't have an experience with interfaith services, it's where various religious leaders of different traditions come and speak and offer uh, prayers and different things. And in this particular interfaith service, there was a Buddhist who quoted from the Dalai Lama and spoke about the inherent goodness of mankind. There was a Jewish rabbi who read from Ecclesiastes 3. A Muslim quoted from the Quran and made appeals to Allah. A Lutheran pastor gave a brief but very hollow pep talk about sticking together and being there for one another. But the singular name of Jesus was never mentioned. An entire memorial service, interfaith service, took place, but Jesus was never acknowledged. There was no reference to him. 
And I think there's a reason for that. The exclusive claims of Jesus are offensive to our pluralistic culture. The claims that Christ makes here in John chapter 14 and in other places in the gospel are offensive to our understanding of religion and of spirituality. It was offensive to a pluralistic Roman society when he made these claims. And it's equally or maybe even more offensive to you and to me today. You can say almost anything about religion in the public sphere except for this. That Jesus is the only way to experience salvation. That he is the only avenue to come to God the Father. That he is the only way to experience eternal life. You can talk to your neighbors, you can talk to your co-workers, and you can say all kinds of things. But if you say this, then people are likely to be offended. Now, our culture denies this idea of exclusive and absolute truth. But Jesus does not. He very clearly here in this passage says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Now, if we're going to have any kind of meaningful conversations with people about what authentic spirituality is, then we're going to have to establish some common grounds. We have to acknowledge that there is a certain thing as truth. And that this truth is more than just factual knowledge, but this truth is grounded in the reality of a person. Jesus doesn't say, I've come to communicate truth to you, but he comes saying, I am truth itself. It's grounded in the very nature and character of who God is. So if we're going to have meaningful conversation, we at least have to establish the groundwork that all of us live according to truth claims. I'll give you a few examples. If you want to call someone on their cell phone, you just can't randomly dial a set of numbers. If you want to reach your wife on her cell phone, you have to dial a specific set of numbers in order to reach her or him. We can't just dial whatever feels good to us. There's no area in life in which you and I are free to make whatever choices and whatever options we want to and achieve the same result or experience. We can deny reality. We can say there is no God. But we are not free from the consequences of denying that reality. You and I live in a world where there is actual, objective, absolute truth. Think about what most major religions or philosophical worldviews are trying to answer the question of how can a person have a right relationship with God or with the Creator or with the universe or however you want to define it. We're answering this question, how does a person live right in relationship to the reality that exists? But in our culture, we move the answer to that question from objective truth to subjective feelings. I feel this way. I prefer this. I long for that. We resist the notion of objective truth when it comes to spiritual reality. As I shared with you earlier this morning, Hudson was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. We took him to our pediatrician. She took a number of blood tests and instructed us that we needed to go to primary children's emergency room. So we loaded up and packed a bag and headed down to Salt Lake City. Now, we're not exactly sure what triggered his onset of type 1 diabetes. It's genetic. My father's type 1 diabetic, my grandfather and uncle's. But what we do know is it's an autoimmune disease in which his body attacks his pancreas. 
and his pancreas is either unable to produce enough or isn't producing any insulin at all. And insulin is just a hormone that our bodies naturally produce in order to break down carbohydrates into glucose and then use that glucose as energy for your cells. In Hudson's particular case and every other diabetic case, the insulin is not present and so that glucose never is allowed to enter into the cells and be converted into energy. And so it just backs up in your system and your body does what it can but slowly over time, it begins to poison you. We talked with the doctors about his condition, and it became clear the only treatment for Hudson is a very regimented schedule of insulin injections. So he now has to account for every single carbohydrate that he consumes. And then he has to respond by administering an appropriate insulin unit dose for every one of those carbohydrates. Now imagine, though, if his endocrinologist came in and said, you know what, we've been studying diabetes and we kind of, this is what we feel. Now there are all kinds of treatments for diabetes. And you just need to decide what you think is going to work best for your son. Now we've studied all the possibilities and I recommend each and every single one of you as a viable option for Hudson to manage his condition. So I'm not going to prescribe a path to your child's recovery because that would be intolerant. That would mean that all of these other people were wrong in their recommendations about how to treat diabetes. I would offend all kinds of medical colleagues. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave it up to you to come to your own conclusions. Because in the end, any and every medical treatment produces the same result. Now, if that were our child's endocrinologist, I would say you're a fool. Not only are you a fool... But you're causing all kinds of destruction in the lives of the people that you're supposed to care about and to provide care for. We know in the case of physical health, absolute truth matters. He can't just simply give himself an insulin injection. It has to be administered in the right dose. If not, it's deadly to him. Now, if that's true about physical health, why would it not be true about spiritual health? We know that this is the truth when it comes to our physical health, but yet when it comes to spiritual health, we play all kinds of ridiculous, silly games. So Jesus says, no, I am the truth of God revealed, but I'm also the way to God. There's an absolute nature to his expression. It is an absolute ultimatum. Notice the definite article, the. Jesus doesn't just say, I am a way, I am a truth. And I am a life. But he insists that he is the singular way, the singular truth, and the singular life of God. He's not just saying he's the way to heaven. He's saying, I am the only way. No one, and just in case we were you know, missing this, he goes, no one comes to the Father except through me. But Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And so things may sound like they make sense, but it leads to our destruction. And so you and I have to decide if it's going to be our way or if we're going to submit ourselves to his way. He's saying, I am the way to God. You don't get there by being good. You don't get there by being religious. You don't get there by being sincere. You get there through Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, this doesn't just come from this one particular statement, but it's supported throughout the entire New Testament. Acts chapter 4, Peter, disciple of Jesus, who denies him before the Jewish leader, 
A great act of bravery. He stands up and proclaims in his preaching, there is salvation in no one else. In verse 12, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It's an exclusive claim that Peter declares that salvation comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. Peter believes that Jesus is the only way to God. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. This is the testimony that's been given to us at the proper time. The Apostle Paul, it was his life's goal to make known that Jesus is the only way for sinners to be reconciled to God. Think about it. Jesus is the only way to get to God the Father. When you're going somewhere, you need clarity. Nobody is ever satisfied with vague directions. Nobody just wants to know, you know, I just kind of head that direction and you'll know it when you get there. No, we want to know what is the name of the street where we're supposed to turn. How far are we supposed to travel on that street before we recognize the location that we're trying to reach? Think about this. Uh, you watch... The Super Bowl maybe last Sunday night. Nick Foles, the quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles. When asked what he's going to do now that he's won the Super Bowl, he said, I'm going to, come on, Disney. I'm going to Disney World. Disney World. Yes, okay. So that's still always, you know, a big deal after major sporting events. They identify one athlete. They ask the question, where is it that you're going? I'm going to Disney World. Now, imagine that Nick Foles is going to take his family to Disney World. And so rather than making a reservation to travel on a private jet, he decides he's going to fly a commercial airline. So he takes his family and he shows up at the airport in Philadelphia. And he looks at those boards and he sees, oh, there's a flight that's going to Orlando. And next to the flight, it says that this flight will be departing from gates 21 through 29. Well, that doesn't make much sense to us because we know that gates are identified specifically. You need to go to gate B8 or 6G. But in this particular instance, it just says gate 21 to 29. So he heads through uh, security. He goes through TSA. And as they make their way to the gates, he's expecting that someone will communicate to him, oh, that you need to go specifically to here. But no one ever arrives to do that. No one gives them the specific gate number. But he sees a lot of people gathered in the concourse. And he sees a number of planes outside awaiting to depart. So he turns to other travelers and he says, how many of you are going to Orlando? And they say, oh, you know what? We were just discussing that. And one, one of the travelers says, you know what? I like the look of that plane. It's a 747 and I want to fly on it. So that's how I'm going to go. But another one says, you know, gate 26. 26 is my favorite number. So I'm going to use gate 26 and get on that plane because it's going to Orlando. Another one says, my son-in-law, he travels for his job, so he knows everything about airports. And he said the last time that he went to Orlando, they used gate 25, so I'm going to gate 25. You and I would ask the question, how does anyone ever know if they're going to Orlando? How could you ever be confident that gate 25 or gate 22 or 747 were going to Orlando? So finally he goes up. He asks about which flight is going to Orlando. And the staff member, the gate agent, says, well, it's not our policy to tell people which gate they have to fly out of because that would be very narrow-minded. So all of these are wonderful options for your travels. They're all going somewhere. And all of us are on a journey. The question is, are we headed 
the right way. People tell us all religions are equal. And when they say that, you can be sure of two things. One, they don't know what they're talking about. And they haven't studied religion very closely. It's offensive to me. It's offensive to Muslims. It's offensive to Buddhists to hear somebody say that. Saying all religions are equal is just insulting. Why? Because if you talk to a Muslim, you'll realize they believe something entirely different than what you and I believe. Talk to a Buddhist and you'll recognize that their beliefs are not only different from ours, but they're also different from the Muslim. The same is true for Judaism and Hinduism and on and on. And so to say that all roads lead to heaven just shows me that you haven't studied the map. Because we teach and believe entirely different things. What we need is a map that shows us the way. And Jesus says, I am that map. And if you want to go to the Father, then follow me. But he also says, I'm the life. And when he says, I'm the life, what he means is that what you and I experience now is just a shadow of what God originally intended for humanity to experience. See, this life is characterized by sickness and suffering and death. But the life that God intended, the life that Jesus comes to bring his people, is a life where those things will one day be completely eradicated. That's why the book of Revelation says the new heavens, the new earth, the place where God wipes away every tear from the eye of his people. Why? Because there's nothing that breaks our heart. There will be nothing there in that new heaven and earth that we look at and say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. But you look here in this life, this particular age, and there are all kinds of things. That break our heart. That crush our spirit. That leave us scratching our heads. But Jesus says, no, I'm coming to bring the kind of life that God the Father intended for humanity to always have. It's an abundant and it's an eternal life. He continues, no one comes to the Father except through me. He says, I'm the only way, the only truth. And the only life. Last week, we gathered together all the ruling elders and teaching elders of the Northern California Presbytery. And one of the ruling elders there is a campus minister on the campus of San Jose State. named Brian Suey. He was talking about his work with students on the college campus. One particular student came to him and says, I believe in hell. And he said, I know that I'm going there. But as Brian heard that and began to unpack this reality and ask questions, he asked this student, he said, would you like to know what it takes to go to heaven? And this student said, yeah, I know what it would take to go to heaven, and it would be a lot of work, and I'm just not ready for that. And so Brian spent the next 45 minutes to an hour explaining to him what the Bible teaches what the Bible says about the gospel. That salvation is not by a lot of work on your behalf or my behalf. But salvation is only in Jesus and in Jesus only. It's not about what you do. It's about what God has done in the person of Jesus. That's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
that He's the only way to God the Father. And we have to put our trust in Him and follow where He leads. Let's pray.